can you describe, were you curious about science from a young age or? Well, I often joke that uh, I intellectually, I kind of peaked when I was eight years old because I remember that time um, I had a friend and we were always together and you know, we were in school, but that was only our side job. And after school, we would go um, actually to uh, the attic where we built a huge laboratory doing science experiments, um, and uh, but also you know, making uh, animation movies, which is quite remarkable at such a young age. So for me, that period was like the Renaissance, and I was like embracing everything uh, in a very, a very bottom-up fashion. From Quantum Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Robert Digraph. Well, can you give us a, a feeling what kinds of experiments? Are we talking chemistry sets or electrical yes. things? Or Well, it was the usual thing. I think chemistry sets with all the kind of explosions that happened, <laughs> you know, when parents were not there. <laughs> um, there were, um, I remember, you know, playing a lot, uh, constructing and deconstructing telescopes and microscopes and Know, playing with spectra and lenses. Robert Digraph is a theoretical physicist who works in string theory and quantum gravity. He's originally from the Netherlands. Honestly, I never had a chance to meet him before this interview, though I had seen him give a performance once. I call it a performance because even though it was a lecture, it felt more like a theatrical show of some kind. He had a little boy running around on stage who was playing the young Einstein. and. This, this way of making the material so engaging made me feel like talking to him was going to be a super dynamic experience. It's interesting that it was done in collaboration with this friend of yours. Yes. I, I mean, so much of science is collaborative, although there's this, this mythology about the lone genius, you know, toiling away. But I, I'm struck by your experience that it was a partnership from a very early age. It was a complete partnership, and uh, I noticed with my friend that we had complementary strength. So I think, you know, my strength was actually finishing projects and really thinking things through and trying to push for, you know, better quality. And his strength was to kind of completely surprise me with new ideas. So, so we were halfway into a project, and then he would come and say, well, now for something completely different. I must say that, you know, in my whole career, I've always been collaborating. I mean, hardly any papers, scientific papers, I've written by myself. And just the pleasure of, you know, doing yourself so much better with the help of your friends and your colleagues, mm -hmm. I think that stayed with me my whole life. Well, I remember I had a, a math teacher who uh, I still very much remember him giving me, uh, it was an, an East German encyclopedia of mathematics and you know it was perhaps the most boring book ever but for me this was like a catalog of everything i didn't know i didn't know and so there were all these different concepts so i for me that triggered a tremendous amount of my imagination um, i had a chemistry teacher who uh, made clear to me that chemistry was the most advanced topic I could do in high school because it was truly quantum mechanical. Hmm. So um, I love that. He was really pushing me in quantum mechanics. You know, these, these two teachers, I think, were crucial for me. Mm. And, you know, if you're um, at that stage, so, you know, my background, and, I mean, my parents didn't go to university or college. And, uh -huh. 
And um, they were very curiously, uh, they were very interested. My father was very interested in history. My mother had uh, some of a background in, in the arts, in the visual arts. Uh, but none of them had any interest in science or math. And so, you know, you you just need a kind of a first contact. You know, you have to be made aware just this new continent that you can go. And so for me, the, ex- the real amazing experience was when I was a high school student, not only could I kind of set foot on that continent, but you, know, you could travel. There were no barriers. I, I mean, somehow the language of mathematics, which is the language spoken in that faraway land, was very natural to me. So um, for me, it was a big surprise that there were no barriers. Now, I was struggling uh, every day with Latin and Greek and <laughs> French and German. And no, that's an uphill struggle. You know, uh-huh. need all the grammars. But for math, there um, was no such barrier. Um, the, the grammar was very crisp and clear. And then you just could start, you know, learning more about uh, all the wonderful things that inhabit that world. Hmm. It's interesting to hear that your parents were not only not scientists, but you say did not neither one went to college. Did I yes. did I understand you correctly? That's yes. interesting to me because my that was true for my parents also, possibly from the same generation. I mean, my yeah. parents grew up in the depression, didn't have a chance to go to college, and they always were were supportive, but didn't quite understand what I was doing or what you know where are you ever going to use mathematics. They would sometimes ask, but not not in an aggressive way. They just genuinely didn't know. Well, for me, that was true, uh, too. So uh, I think I was in this very prestigious high school. Uh, almost all other students had families you know, with an academic background. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a lot of pressure. Basically, there were two career choices. You either became a medical doctor if you liked the sciences, or you became a lawyer if you're more interested in humanities. And the fact that I actually chose to study physics was seen as a crazy career choice. Mm-hmm. And often I think, you know, I only made the choice because, um, you know, I had parents that, you know, they were very supportive, but they had basically no clue uh, <laughs> sure. what the university was. And uh, so they just said, well, if, if it feels good to you, please go ahead. And so uh, that was kind of liberating, I felt. I went, as many of my you know, contemporaries, uh, went to study in Utrecht because Gerard het Hoofd, who later would become a Nobel Prize winner, was like the leading light in particle physics. So I wanted to work with him, but I never saw him. You know, we just saw people teaching you calculus and classical mechanics and mm-hmm. electrodynamics, and I just found it extremely boring. Mm. I must say, you know, one thing that really attracted me from the very beginning of science is the fact that it's this, you know, this limitless world, you know, you can do anything you want. You, you know, you the things that you meet in science are even crazier than your imagination can can think of. And somehow I was disappointed that you know, that was not the way uh, physics was taught. Um, it was about uh, taking exams, and actually I was very good in taking exams. I always had perfect scores. But, okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm, you know, I had perfect score. Um, but I had, uh, like, zero interest, and I think that was not a good combination. <laughs> 100 on results, zero on interest. Exactly. Wow. After a few years, I remember um, uh, my my wife, who was then my girlfriend, said, Robert, you know, I'm, I'm, what's happening? You know, you I don't see you doing any calculations, but your whole room is full of paintings. And you know, <laughs> and somehow, slowly, without me 
actually realizing it, my attention had shifted away from physics. So uh, I applied to uh, the, the most prestigious art school in the Netherlands, and um, which was uh, wonderful to get in because I think you know, only one in 20 wow. got in. So I, I wasn't more proud of myself as the day I was admitted. One thing I did very um, consistently is keep from them that I have any background in science mm -hmm. because my, my great fear would be to be recognized as the best painter among physicists or the best <laughs> physicist among painters and uh -huh. none of them <laughs> sounded very attractive. <laughs> so I wanted to be seen for um, an artist and that's it. Yeah. And um, I must say I, sp I spent two years there and it was just absolutely wonderful because you know the remarkable thing in art school is it's not at all about taking exams. It's uh -huh. not at all about whether you have a perfect score on a calculation. It's about how adventurous are you? Are you willing to go into other fields? And particularly in the beginning, they pushed us to do photography or graphics or sculpture or architecture, all of it. So for me, that felt like a wonderland. You know, you could just explore, explore, explore. Hmm. And then I still remember the day, you know, I was walking into the university bookstore and I said you know what uh, I saw the physics uh, shelves and I said you know that's wonderful I can go and look at the physics books and I'm not burdened in any way that this is my career and I remember picking up a few books of physics and well that's so wonderful <laughs> and now I can read them and really enjoy them and I think then in some sense uh, the, the fire that I thought it was extinguished uh, started to slowly burn wow. again. And uh, then I was reading these books and thought, oh, that's terrific. <laughs> it's so exciting. I remember reading books about particle physics. Uh, so this was the early 80s about the standard model. And, uh, and then I thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm missing my old life. Mm. And uh, but one thing which was, I think, quite, I still remember very well that then I had to break the news to my art school that I would go back into physics. Ah. And this was kind of an interesting conversation because that had that message had two independent bits of information because they didn't know my background <laughs> to physics. So really, you had I kept still, it secret the whole time. I kept it secret. People often tell me, wow, you know, you took this big detour going through art school. But I like to point out it actually was a shortcut Mm. Because for me, actually, art school, honestly, I learned what it means to do research. Um, after a week of hard work, the only thing that mattered in art school, whether you, how high was the pile of drawings or projects, how much did you explore that week? And so when I went back to physics, I felt, let's keep that. You know, at the end of the week, I want to see a pile of calculations, of sketches. It doesn't matter whether these are original ideas or not they are original because you know you made them mm -hmm. and it should be an active uh, subject it's uh, physics is something you do math is something you do it's mm -hmm. not something you absorb and mm -hmm. so for me um, that two years in art school were like a tremendous boost of what it means to be a research scientist so, uh, yeah, I really credit uh, that experience or something to not only re regenerating my love for the field, but also uh, giving me some very serious advice. And wow. basically the advice is that, you know, research is much more about the process, about the path, 
than the goal or the result. So often we hear people talking about, can we reconcile art and science or the two halves of our brain or whatever? And you're, you're telling something much, you're, you're phrasing it so much more strongly that, that art was actually enabling for you in, in guiding you to the right way to do the science you'd always sort of wanted to do. Well, I mean, one thing as a scientist that you're always struggling with is how to deal with the unknown. Mm -hmm. By definition, science is going into uh, an area where nobody has gone before. And that could be the smallest, tiniest calculation, could be with the biggest theory, the most amazing experimental result. But how do you deal with the unknown? And you know, art always deals with this. The moment you put a pencil on paper and you start drawing, you already make something that nobody has ever made before. The, the, the possible shapes of objects of art are of an infinitude that's much larger than you know, what we can explore in science. So artists have found ways to you know, get comfortable enough and get confident enough to venture out into this big open space. And I think that's something you can learn. Uh, for one thing, you can learn from your colleagues. Uh, one thing I really learned in art school, how important it is to... Uh, jump into the deep together because you know at, at best you can hold on to each <laughs> other and when I went back to physics that's also something that uh, for me was a, a huge difference from my undergraduate experience that very early on in graduate school I got to know some wonderful colleagues and you know we we hang together and we felt you know we had a lot of confidence I would say overconfidence uh, in what we could achieve Mm -hmm. uh, we're afraid of nobody and nothing. <laughs> I must say, my graduate uh, school time was a golden era because it was, you know, we were just with a group of students. We were hanging together. We were, you know, we had, in principle, we could have the most amazing supervisor. Geert at Hoofd, you know, is one of the great, you know, all-time great physicists of the 20th century, I feel, you know. We were basically given this freedom to do whatever we want. And that was tremendous. And so I remember, you know, we would um, you know, just read all the preprints. Uh, at that time, string theory was taking off. So we felt, well, that's wonderful. You know, it's like a, a big reset of physics. And, you know, we all start with zero points. And, you know, as a young graduate student, you could jump in and be part of that. And it was a little bit like... Uh, the time when I was with my elementary school friend in the mm -hmm. attic. No, we were just we were just going around reading papers. I remember you know, looking at some very complicated paper and then just uh, throwing it in the corner of our office and saying, well, I'm sorry, we're not interested in this. So kind of cocky behavior that <laughs> <laughs> now I would strongly object to as a professor. But um, actually, as graduate students, we had a ball. Even as somebody who's been thinking about physics for close to 50 years now, Robert really stretched me in the next part of our conversation. His, he took me to the outer reaches of what I know in, in math and in physics. He and his colleagues are working at the extreme cutting edge of modern physics. It's a field that we call string theory. And for them, the stakes are very high. They, they would say, and I think it's not an exaggeration, that physics is in a a time of crisis. They have two magnificent theories that both seem right, but they can't both be right because they disagree with each other. So one of them comes out of Einstein's work, and it's his theory of gravity and curved space and time that we call general relativity. 
And then there's another theory, quantum theory, quantum mechanics, that describes the smallest particles, subatomic particles. It's just our deepest and most accurate theory of the way nature works. And, and yet, when they try to put these two theories together, as physicists like to do, they love to unify. There's been a great history of unification in physics. People unified the theory of electricity with magnetism, and now we have electromagnetism as a single object. Or Einstein showed that mass and energy were equivalent through his famous E equals MC squared. This idea that nature is sort of all of one piece, almost it's almost a religious thing for them. Like when you hear about monotheism, you know that there is one God, as opposed to the older idea that there are many, many gods. This monotheist impulse in physics is very strong. And, and so when we hear nowadays that quantum theory, the theory of the very small atoms and subatomic particles, doesn't really play nicely with the theory of the very large, the cosmological theories of um, general relativity and gravity. The, the, the difficulty of reconciling those two theories is considered the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, outstanding unsolved problem in physics. Robert and people like him work in this area of string theory, which is the, the great hope for bringing these two subjects together. But I think the real breakthroughs uh, came through, um, for me at least personally, through what are called matrix models. Mm -hmm. And uh, matrix models are like a car cartoon versions of the gate theories that describe uh, you know, all the forces in nature, all the other forces except gravity. So the strong and the weak interaction, the standard model. And the concepts, the crucial concept in, in matrix models is symmetry. And so you can have, for instance, n by n matrices, which means it's like symmetry in an n-dimensional space. And there's a long line of thinking that um, out of these matrices, somehow space can emerge. And actually, in my own research, I've had several incarnations of that idea. The, the very first one, I remember well, because it, it happened basically on my very first day uh, as a fully uh, you know, grown-up physicist. That is my very first day when I was a postdoc here in Princeton. And you know, I, the plane landed, I arrived, this was in 1989, and my friends came to me, did you hear it, did you hear it? There's a revolution that just started. <laughs> and, uh, and literally on that day... Wait a minute, so while you're in the air, something happened? Something happened, happened. <laughs> yes. Uh, literally that, that day I landed, three papers had appeared that uh, what now are known as the kind of matrix model revolution, they show that out of these matrices, you could build strings, you could build gravity, you could build space-time, essentially. And uh, I still remember well that afternoon walking into uh, the office of Edward Witten, who explained to us how all of this is related to his grand vision of mathematics, it's related to the geometry of Riemann surfaces and all of that. And... Um, that was a very exciting period because it, it showed that um, this is one of these surprises that are totally from left field. Now, everybody was trying to quantize space and time, somehow bending gravity and space and time according to the traditional ways in which we would quantize other fields. And, and But this was like something completely different because space and time uh, we're no longer there. Uh, what you basically got, you got a theory of gravity together with space and time, all of it 
emerging out of something more fundamental. So, man, I got to look at Bert. Bert's looking at me. What do they say in Star Trek? To, no, not just to go boldly go, but something about space. That's it. Space. Space. The final frontier. Space, the These final the frontier. Space is the final frontier. Not, and I'm not just talking here about outer space. I'm talking about the space that we all move in, left and right, up and down, forward and backward, the three dimensions of space. I mean, we think of space as a very fundamental, basic thing. We don't even really think about it. It's Okay, it's got these three different dimensions, the three axes, but there it is. And then we also talk about this other thing that's even more mysterious, time. We move forward in time from the, the present to the future. We wish we could sometimes go backward in time. We haven't figured out how or whether that's possible. But, but so you've got space and time, and these seem like the bedrock for everything, that when you describe things happening in the world as a physicist, it's it's forces and particles, and it's all taking place in this arena of space and time. Basically, a long part of my research career is that, you know, that we might have things upside down, that we always thought of space and time as being, you know, on the bottom floor of the building. Mm -hmm. It's the most fundamental thing there is. And in fact, Einstein wanted to construct everything out of space of time, even particles. That nowadays we think, well, you know, in some sense, there it might be one of the top floors, <laughs> or, or at least there is a basement. You know, you can go below space and time, where you have mathematical structures that you know are very rich and interesting. But one thing they do not have is space and time, because space and time will emerge as an indirect property out of them. So, in Robert's metaphor, space and time are the ground floor. They are the bottom. And everything is built on top of that. And, and the history of physics has been figuring out the rules of the forces, gravity and electricity and magnetism, and the types of matter, you know, electrons and protons, and everything that moves around in this arena of space and time. And so those other things are seen as higher floors built on top of this bedrock of space and time. But the, the mind-blowing thing that Robert brings up is that as physicists understand it today, and this is still very speculative and it may not turn out to be right, but the best current guess is that at the deepest level, space and time are not actually the ground floor. There's something below them in the basement. There is some more fundamental nature of reality that is almost like math itself in the form of matrices or something like that that gives rise to what we used to think of as the most fundamental thing of all, space and time. So Robert was part of he calls it a matrix model revolution. In the, the late 1980s, there was a discovery in a series of papers that this point of view that matrices were fundamental, that by thinking about matrix models, mathematical descriptions of these matrices and their properties, other things popped out of them. Strings that people had been studying in string theory, gravity itself, and space and time. They all could be derived from this, this deeper level of reality of matrix models. Now, we would like to see the great conundrum of quantizing gravity, of kind of marrying quantum mechanics and general relativity, gravity, and say, gauge theories or symmetries, that we would do it in a two-step process. Now, first we have space and time, and then on top of the space-time there are these gravity fields, and they have to be quantized. When you try to make Einstein's theory of gravity match up with quantum theory to create a 
a theory that people call quantum gravity. It just doesn't seem to work very well. Certain numbers that you'd like to calculate come out to be infinite. And that's crazy because we know that we can measure these numbers, properties of like particles, we want to measure the mass of the electron or the charge of the electron or things like that. They should just come out to be some interesting number, but the theory in its naive form keeps giving infinity if you just do the simplest way of quantizing gravity. So this is a killer for the physicists and they have not solved it yet. But the best hope for solving it seems to be to say the points that we used to think about as fundamental, like if you picture an electron as just a point with no dimensions at all, just the tiniest conceivable speck, if you somehow imagine that a speck is not the smallest thing in nature anymore, but that it has to be a tiny loop, a little loop of what they call string, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that, that nature is not made of point-like particles, it's actually made of tiny loops of some ineffable string. It turns out, if you do that, that all these problems about the infinities go away. This was an astonishing discovery that, that led to string theory becoming sort of the it girl or the it boy of theoretical physics. The matrix models that I started about were low dimensional examples of this. It mm -hmm. was kind of gravity in two dimensions. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But now we have four and five and other dimensions, but you know, it's, it's, it's case by case. What he's saying is we're trying to practice, we're doing a warm up problem for what we hope to do someday with string theory. And these matrix models give us a warm-up problem. It's like a sandbox for a little kid to play in. We're going to play with these matrix models. We're going to grow up and get good at them. And maybe someday, maybe a century from now, we'll finally figure out how string theory really works. And then we'll have it. We'll have the real theory of the universe. When we get back, Robert and I are going to get all soft and gooey about the most emotional dimension the dimension of time. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quantum Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quantum Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantummagazine.org. Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. Now we'll go back to Robert's metaphor of the universe as a building. Let's start on the first floor. So on the first floor, we have all these possible shapes. Think of it as a large sculpture gallery. We have all these possible beautifully curved spaces um, of uh, cosmologies, of black holes, of you know, combinations of black holes. And now in the basement, we have all these quantum mechanical machines, but we have a similar zoo there. <laughs> yeah, so if you ask me or anybody, what is the general pattern and you know, how do I know that something is describing approximately a, a space-time, I think these are fundamental questions that at this point uh, we cannot answer. We're doing more, we're more like botanists at this point than, you know, we uh, wow. have a kind of a grand theory as a Darwin had of uh, life. Did, did this uh, zoo of theories always predict that there's one time dimension as opposed to many possible times? Uh, that's a terrific question, you know, whether the, uh, the role of time, and I must say, the, um, up to now, 
most success has been in theories with uh, building kind of these space, these emergent space directions. Yeah. I would say emergent time is still very, very fuzzy. There are just a handful of ideas. They're much less rigorous. And you know, this points out to perhaps a great defect of quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics is a completely revolutionary theory. It you know, puts all our preconceived ideas away about what it means to predict uh, the role of you know what does it mean to to be something you know you have this wonderful property of being at many places at the same time but somehow quantum mechanics treats time in a very conventional way so um, I think you know the um, probably the big breakthroughs in all this field this whole field will come when we have a better understanding of the role of time of emergent time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it's a fascinating question whether you can have more than one time direction. I think this is often seen as a little bit of a crackpot subject. <laughs> but I'm very proud that I've written a paper about multiple times. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> How many do you have? Uh, I think we, we actually had uh, you know, various kind of signatures. So, so in that paper, uh, we, we explored um, you know, basically arbitrary number of times. So we tried to explore that. It's not inconceivable that it's allowed within string theory and you know it's it's one of these fascinating questions you know it's a good example of a question that's often asked by people who you know have very little understanding of physics and it's a wonderful question you know and it's you know it's often the so-called stupid questions that uh, we don't have answers to well the time especially i mean getting emotional for a moment, feels to me, if it even makes sense to say this, the most emotional of the dimensions. That there's it something is. poignant about time. We all know that, right? Memory and loss and future. and Space doesn't compare to time as far as emotional significance. I, I agree. And uh, you know, I have my own space-time theory about the art. So, you know, you can... Uh, Let's hear it. Uh, so uh, so you, you can think of, well, if you... Now, explore space. You have typically, you know, the visual arts, um, you know, sculpture, painting, etc. Um, if you go in time, you have music, and you no, know, I think I'm fair to say that on average, the most emotional form of the arts is music. That you know, people can really start crying if they hear a certain song yes. or the, even a certain movement. Um, it's um, it's a different way, and I think it's because. No, we experience space in a very different way than time. You know, we experience space very freely. We can move, you can we wave our hand and you know, we go left and right, it's no problem. At uh, time, we only go forward. So I feel we are really be strapped into um, a little car on a, on a roller coaster, which is time. Mm. A- and we push forward and that's why I think indeed time is much more emotional because we have to uh, experience second by second. You know, there's no way in which we at once can see the whole plot of a movie or play, or we, you know, you you can look at the score of a symphony, but you're not as emotionally touched if you hear it note by note. Mm-hmm. So there's something in which we experience time, I think, as human beings, completely different from space. But then, you know, Einstein comes and say, well, they're interchangeable. You know, you uh, the moment you start moving, you're somehow confusing a little bit space and time. And this is, again, one of the great conundrums, um, the way in which we formulate physics and certainly the way we experience reality. We definitely do not experience space and time on the same footing. Yeah. Uh, even our physical theories make a great distinction. 
you know, often it's joked that physics science is all about one question, you know, what happens next. So it tries to predict the future, mm -hmm. knowing the present. And um, that's a very, very different approach than we have to space direction. So yeah, time is still kind of sticking out in many ways. <laughs> well, so when we talk about the emotional aspects of these different dimensions, it, it raises in my mind this broader question of of feelings in general when we mm -hmm. um, do science. Uh, so c since feelings, of course, are, well, traditionally important in art, I don't know if in modern art we still talk about feelings, but, but what about these questions of aesthetic feelings and their role in... Um, in scientific or mathematical creativity? Yeah, well, for me, it's always been a remarkable experience that, uh, first of all, there are certain areas in math and physics that you strongly emotionally react to. Now, we use the word beautiful or elegant without any hint of irony. Mm -hmm. No, I think actually truly feel this is a strong, aesthetical, uh, emotional response. And then for me, the great surprise has been that you talk to your colleagues and they actually have the same feelings. Sure. Right? They are they're equally enthusiastic and they um, and they they might even point you to something that's even more beautiful, you know, and they write and then you enjoy it. So um, there is this great kind of consensus in physics and math, I would say, um, largely, about what we find beautiful. And sometimes I joke, you know, because the word beauty and beautiful are these words are very little used in arts these days. So, you know, because you, and piece of art, an artwork is uh, interesting, it's provocative, <laughs> it's stimulating, you know. Yes. You have all these other uh, descriptors. And I feel, you know, beauty is being chased out of art and it felt find refuge in science. So it's a remarkable thing. It's <laughs> like almost an upside down world, you know, where the sciences, which are often were accused of being you know, in the rom romantic period of being, you know, heartless and yeah. you know, rational and only about results and about mathematics. Um, you know, the, the, the famous uh, saying that uh, Newton unweaved the rainbow. Yes. Um, and that nowadays, I think uh, the only place I can freely talk about beauty in some sense is in the word, world of, of science, where um, at least it has a kind of a good understanding you know we have some consensus about it mm -hmm. and it's it's i think it's kind of remarkable the role it has it's it's i think it's an emotional response but often i also think of it as a it's part of our intuition about it's a compass almost guiding us into the unknown yeah so i think you know what when we talk about uh, the beauty in math Sometimes I joke, you know, it's the impact per symbol in a mathematical formula. You know, it has to do with the conciseness about the depth of the ideas. It's basically how we uh, intuitively value its future use. You know, how far it will push us ahead. And it's a remarkable fact that uh, some of us, and I think we, the truly great scientists, mathematicians, have this in even much greater uh, amount of this kind of intuition, they're able to pick up um, certain elements in math and say, wait a moment, you know, this is, this is a little diamond, this is something that, you know, will, has great value, this will help us, 
and this will guide me in my research. And sometimes I think that beauty is an acquired taste. So it might be the first time you read about it and you hear about it, you know, it looks very convoluted. It's very almost hidden, but then you spend more time reading about it, learning about it. And then sometimes this kind of a beauty really appears to you and you feel it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's not only very useful in a sense, it guides your future research, but let also be fair you know it's one of the great joys of being a scientist to experience that beauty it's like being a a, you know a mountaineer and standing on a summit and seeing this vast landscape it's you know it's uh, just the sheer joy of being at that moment and and feeling the depth of these ideas well, is astonishing. Uh, th- so uh, there's a little bit of tension, though, in, in science between beauty and truth. Now, tension may not be quite the right word, but there's a subtle relationship between them that um, was brought home to me in a remark I heard you make in, in one of your talks that I, I happened to listen to on the Internet, where you use the analogy of Odysseus being asking to be tied to the mast of the ship <laughs> because of the, you know, he wants to hear the beautiful siren song. But he knows how dangerous it is. It'll carry him into the rocks if, <laughs> you yes, know, if he exactly. guides the ship that way. You, so there, there are, of course, possibilities that beauty could be the siren song for us in physics. Um, yeah, beauty can be very mathematical. Beauty can be very seducing, and uh, of course, you know, uh, if you put on your hat as a physicist, you want to describe the structures in reality in the world out there. Yeah. Or I would say, you know, the possible worlds um you know it's we're not only of course describing physics but really out there we we describe possibilities you know we're also looking at you know other possible solutions to the laws of nature um so and one thing of course we have learned that you know math can be extremely relevant in describing the world and mathematical beauty can coincide with the Um, the truth of describing reality. But, you know, sometimes you can uh, declare victory too early. (laughs) Um, So I think there are many examples in the past where, you know, physicists were seduced by mathematical beauty and they thought, you know, the idea is so beautiful, it has to be true. And this can be very painful. Um, Essentially, I think if you look back on all these cases, I would say that they were wrong, not because they were valuing... um, overvaluing, overestimating the beauty of the this particular branch of mathematics, but they were simply not aware there were even more beautiful branches <laughs> of mathematics. <laughs> Honestly. Um, okay. and, uh, You're and all in. You're all in for beauty. <laughs> no, and I think, that, but this is, uh, I think there's a wonderful phrase, I think uh, kind of Feynman describes this. He says, you know, you're typically life of a theoretical physicist, you know, you have this wonderful theory and you're all happy and it's all beautiful and fine and elegant. And then you know, reality uh, intervenes. And then there are experimental results. There might be another particle. There might be a number. And it doesn't fit. And you feel, what's this? You know, I'm, I'm somebody is, uh, is destroying my, my uh, work of art. You know, there's <laughs> like scratches on it. And yes. it gets, gets uglier and uglier. And then you, that is a very depressing thought. But often what happens, and we have, we have went through this transition now a few times, that when, when the when at some point, when the dust settles, there are many more pieces and they fit together in a new scheme 
that's more beautiful because it's more powerful. Uh-huh. It's it's something you have to learn. In some sense, let's be fair too, that you know, physicists are not always the most sophisticated mathematicians. And it's almost like in art, you know, people might love uh you know, a realistic art. And uh, when they, for the first time, see an impressionist painting or they see a Van Gogh or they see, you know, abstract expressionist painting, they might think, what's this? You know, we're going the wrong direction. But after some time, you might say, wait a moment, you know, we, this piece of art expresses much more. It's much more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so I think that has happened again and again. So in some sense, I think the art here is to cherish these pieces of mathematics uh, keep them in your toolbox but no not uh try to use them so to say you know force force this upon nature i noticed the saying you know if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail and there have been examples of this you know of certain branches of mathematics you try to hit everything with that particular mathematical concept in fact new mathematical concepts can emerge and um if I'm trying to make a bet, say in 50 years, if we see what the kind of mathematics is that's b- been seen as beautiful and powerful and elegant and relevant to nature, so truthful too, it's probably be a branch of mathematics that isn't with us right now. Mm. One of the most fascinating developments in both physics and mathematics these days is is that the flow of ideas has started recently to go from physics into mathematics, especially because quantum mechanics is such a bountiful source of radical ideas that that math itself is being reshaped. Uh, I I think that's one of the most wonderful developments, that the uh, hard-won intuition about quantum theory and physics, which were really, you know, pressed upon us by experiments. You know, I like to say, you know, you could meditate for centuries you would never come up with the rules of quantum mechanics. You know, they're really, really bizarre. Uh, but actually, it's describing reality, 100% of reality. And so that the ideas from quantum mechanics are also useful in understanding abstract mathematics. In fact, are could be the kernel of developing completely new mathematical concepts. Uh, is fascinating. There's great need of this new kind of mathematics. I like to call it quantum mathematics in physics. But I think it's also a very important movement just within pure math itself. When he speaks of quantum mathematics, he means infusing ideas that come from physics, from the study of the real world, into the pure ideal world of mathematics. That uh, there's normally a feeling that we use math to study nature and that the flow goes in that direction, from math into physics. But quantum mathematics is this reversal of the current that has been happening in the past few decades with some stunning successes, where ideas from physics are now being imported back into math and revolutionizing math itself, separate from its connection to reality. And if you think about it, there actually is a lot of resonance between the ideas in quantum physics and modern math. So one thing quantum physics does, you know, you have this sum over histories. Basically, everything happens at, you know, at the same time in quantum mechanics. It's just with different kind of probabilities. So if you're a quantum physicist, you're forced to look at the whole collection of natural phenomena and somehow organize them. And I would say this is also very much the modern mathematical point of view 
modern mathematics is not so much about studying one particular member of the family of spaces, of numbers, of symmetry groups, but looking at the whole family and their mutual relationships and perhaps even the relationships are model relationships. So it's a much more comprehensive point of view. The great thing of quantum theory is that it you know, allows you to calculate with this <laughs> abstract principle. So the wonderful thing is that, you know, although in quantum theory, as I said, you know, everything is happening at the same time and we have this bizarre concept of a sum over histories, in the end, you get a number out, you know, a probability amplitude, a complex number. So quantum theory is also a calculational scheme to deal with this infinitude of possibilities. And I think that's exactly what the doctor ordered in mathematics because <laughs> it's, it's a way to um, study you know, many different spaces at the same time, to various topolo topologies or count objects. Or There's so many kind of almost combinatorical problems in math that are like perfectly set up for a quantum treatment. Mm -hmm. So I think mathematicians are slowly um, embracing this point of view. Um, I must say... Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done and you know and this perhaps shared the, the biggest frustration in this is that you know the concepts in physics are very fuzzy so I you know there are wonderful ideas about space and time and quantum theory but we're really struggling with these concepts and that makes the communication with mathematicians sometimes difficult because if I talk about a number or a space, or a group, or any other well-defined object that I could find in my mathematical encyclopedia. No, I'm, I'm, I can talk to my mathematical colleagues. Um, unfortunately, the concepts that we're struggling with right now, what is quantum gravity, what are emergent space-times, these are all really fuzzy, uh, unclear objects that I can't give an axiomatic definition. So sometimes mathematicians, you know, I notice they only start listening to you when you have a very well-defined conjecture or <laughs> result. Well, that of course, that depends on the nature of the mathematician. There are some who, you know, in the more applied areas like that fuzziness because we know that there's, I say we, because I think of myself in that space in the applied math world, that, that there's, there's so much fertility in the fuzziness. I think that's right. And, and so um, I wouldn't be surprised that... Um, as often happens, you know, with ideas that come out of physics, think about, you know, the birth of geometry, you know, the ancient uh, world, or the birth of uh, calculus, as you know very well, mm -hmm. and described wonderfully, um, coming out of studying of mechanics. And the impact that, you know, calculus or analysis or geometry in all its incarnations have had on math, you know, they're really the big, huge areas in math, that the ideas of quantum theory should be equally productive. Mm -hmm. And if you're honest, you, know, you would say, wait a moment, uh, quantum theory is the chosen language of reality. Nature actually picked quantum theory, the language of quantum mechanics, um, and, and preferred it you know, uh, compared to classical mechanics and, and geometry and all these concepts that we love, you know, differentiable functions and lines and, and, and planes and points. So nature probably has an even more powerful set of ideas. So I think, you know, it's, I would be really surprised if, 
in the long run, the impact of quantum theory, which has taken over almost all of physics, will take over a large chunk of mathematics. Mm. Well, let's leave it there, Robert. That is a very fascinating forecast for the future. It reminds me a little bit of something a colleague of mine once said. I, I was at MIT and my colleague Dan Friedman, who who you may know from yes, uh, Supergravity. Well. Yeah. So Dan said to me that I needed to learn quantum mechanics. He said, if, if you just knew some quantum mechanics, you could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that may go for all of us. In, in I think that's a wonderful line. <laughs> it right. is very dangerous. It is. <laughs> Next time on The Joy of X, Karina Tarnida will reveal the magic of teeny tiny termites. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quantum Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quantum Magazine, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet, and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, though I know him as Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.